Good morning, Benzinga Nation. One thing that you know we love to do here at Benzinga is to talk to executives, whether they're from publicly traded companies, privately held companies, and just try to talk to them and see what is going on in today's world. And of course, the buzzword for the past, what, year or so has been AI, whether it's because you want ChatGPT to do your homework, whether it's because you're trying to cut some editing up for audio and video, or you're trying to figure out how to take care of marketing for your business and cut through all the fluff and all the noise that might be happening. And that's exactly why we're having a conversation with two amazing people. One of them is going to be Jeremy Barnett, who is the CEO and co-founder of Rad AI. And the other individual is going to be Dr. Alex Wisner, who is excuse me, Dr. Alex Wiesner-Gross, who is the AI Academic Founding Advisor. This is AI Revolution 2024 Portfolio Building. Let's go ahead and bring up my guests right now. How's it going, gentlemen? Hey, how are you? It's a pleasure to be here. It should be a great conversation. Really looking forward. Anytime we get to talk about AI, I'm always excited because there's so many different things that you can do with it. There's so many ways to make your life a little bit more effective and just kind of get more productivity out of things as well. So really excited to talk to both of you. Uh, Jeremy, we'll start with you. If you could just explain it to me and the viewers like we're five, what exactly is it that your company does? Uh, Rad AI is an artificial intelligence that's essential for brands to identify uh, and locate new audiences that they want to attract and ultimately boost content ROI. And we do that by creating a audience first persona, uh, essentially telling the customer uh, the topics, categories and interests their customer cares about as it relates to the world today. So a lot of a lot of people refer to that as real time. We like to refer to that as a real world look at who your customer is, what they care about most and the topics, categories and interests that motivate them to take an action. Now, we'll dive into that a little bit deeper, um, but Dr. Alex, I want to talk to you because you've got an impressive you know, history. You've, you teach at Harvard, you teach at MIT, you publish a lot of different things. This isn't your first rodeo when it comes to AI itself as well. You've got yourself just muted heads up on that, but I'd love to know what is it about AI in terms of this field that kind of really excites you that you were the founding advisor? Well, it's, it's sort of an interesting time in the field in the sense that generative uh, image and video tools have gotten more and more effective and less and less expensive. So I, I think we find ourselves in a world where influencer content is abundant or even post abundant. And it's, it's increasingly, I think, not going to be obvious to consumers in a world that's awash with AI generated content, what they should trust and what sh they should allow to influence them. So I, I think there's, a real market opportunity now in this post-abundant generative AI world to, to rethink the relationship between brands and AI and consumers in, in that type of context. Now, Jeremy, you've been in the AI business for quite some time now. Again, like I said, it's been the buzzword for me for maybe about a year or two, but you were fascinated by this in 2012. You're a three-time founder. Now you serve as a CEO and co-founder of Rad AI. You've been through the ups and downs of innovation through disruptive situations. Let's Tell me a little bit about the machine learning, right? How does that kind of help us in terms of streamline the content strategies and more importantly, also the tangible impacts that your customers have observed on the ROI? Because it's about that bottom line, especially when it comes to the audience engagement. Sure. I, I would preface everything with, uh, you know, some, somebody asked me the other day, well, your AI seems to be providing 
all of this really wonderful information that's going to help brands come up with a content strategy, uh, I would be scared that the uh, the mid-level directors at the companies that we work with, that their job would potentially be in jeopardy as a result of the work that your AI does. And it, it, what we're finding um, is it's really just the opposite. What the technology does is it essentially makes you smarter at the tasks that you're given to do. So uh, there, there's a there's a funny thing I heard the other day. It's imagine if Steven Spielberg could have a movie released every six months opposed to waiting every three to four years, right? That's really what the power of AI does. It makes people that are really good at the things they do even better. Uh, so what we're seeing is two different lanes of adoption. And each lane has very distinct value propositions associated with why customers are scaling. Uh, the first lane would be direct with the agencies which service uh, some of the largest brands in the world. And the agencies that are our clients in this context are using the AI for a very specific reason. And, and it really connects right to that vein to the P&L and balance sheet. It's helping them have a product differentiation at market against their competition. Uh, that ultimately improves closing rates. So the difference between getting a deal or not getting a deal oftentimes is dictated not just by the story that you're able to tell, but by the proof points and the validation points that you're able to show a prospect or an existing customer on why your service or your solution makes more sense than your competitors. That ultimately improves lifetime value, uh, customer test sizes. So that vein really just kind of bolts right into the P&L and balance sheet. Uh, that's on the, we'll call it before the campaign is ran. Yeah. Uh, once we run a campaign, uh, clients, uh, and we're brand direct with clients and we're also working with agencies, but I would say clients, they typically have a very similar value index that's tied to ROI. So quantifiable ROI can mean a lot of different things to different brands and there's different, yeah. uh, there's different scenarios. For example, a healthcare agency, excuse me, a healthcare company came to us. Uh, they had a program they wanted to run. They had a whole, uh, a wide breadth of resources and infrastructure and money invested into this program. They decided that they wanted to target men that were um, over the age of 45 years old uh, for a vitality product. Yeah. Um, they were going off of a data set that was dated in the context of the real world. It wasn't exact and it wasn't an accurate representation of who their customer was today. They had already invested all of this time, effort and resources and money towards coming up with a program, swag boxes, time, creative resources, all of these things towards men that were my age. 45 to 55 years old. The idea is us guys need a little bit of this vitality product that they are offering. This is a huge company, right? So this, this is not a problem that's just isolated with small companies. As a matter of fact, we've seen the problem more relevant and pronounced in larger enterprise. So when we engage with them, we say, well, look, before we just start finding influencers that fit this bigger, uh, we'll call it, excuse me, fit this older male demographic, let's see what the data tells us. And when the data came back and told us there was a clear shift in who their audience was, number one, their audience was a younger guy, somewhere between the age of 23 to 30 years old. He's at the beginning of his career. He wants a little bit more pep in his step. Maybe he wants a little bit of juice when he goes out at night and feel a little bit more vital. Uh, at any rate, that was a complete paradigm shift. That's in the context of that healthcare company. So when you start talking about an incorrect strategy 
at the onset of a campaign, yeah. that ultimately impacts the ROI down the road. Uh, there's another instance, which I also find super fascinating with a publicly traded cybersecurity company that is a client and they came to us and their problem was we need to find a new audience and uh, their traditional customer is keep the kids safe when they're surfing online. We don't want our kids seeing provocative, controversial content when they're on their internet. How do we do that? And that's what they built their business around and they were very successful doing that. But they want a new audience. They want to grow. They want to be the leader in their category, which most brands have that very similar ambition. So when we did our analysis, we we found some really interesting information. Today's household is filled with these 13 to 16 year olds, which are doubling as tech support within the household. That was very interesting, right? And if, if you have a 14 or a 15 year old, yeah. aside from the adolescent behavior that you have to deal with, you probably can relate to their probably just as technically in tune, if not more. So these younger sort of adults in these households are doubling as tech support to keep things safe. And then these households are taking care of the elderly in their family. So yeah. it's first time computer owners, people that are susceptible to phishing. So we came up with a full audience persona around that customer profile, which was a completely new way to look at who their customer could be and what audience opportunities there were there are for them in 2024. And there's a very large campaign around that right now. So those yeah. are typically the two contexts. Now, if you break that down, you isolate that problem at the beginning, that's the first leg of the program. When you hit on those buttons, you can then tap into those very traditional things that tie directly into the balance sheet, which is quantifiable return on investment. So brands look at it in a very black and white manner. There's going to be your marketing team that speaks a lot of jargon. You don't necessarily need to make them happy. They need to be happy enough to where they're going to bat for you. But the people you need to be concerned about, it's the chief operating officer, the chief financial officer, and the real budget custodians. So you have to del deliver quantifiable ROI that when they look at it, they understand the value. Because at some point, the marketing team isn't making the decision on whether to decide to continue with you. It's somebody that the marketing team is responsible to. Now, there's three things that kind of, you know, pop out to me from what you just answered. One of them is the fact, you know, I, I'm producing a show right now about arts festival and things like that. And I'm trying to descript the recordings that I've done similar to what you and I are doing, except we're live. And I found a Reddit thread from nine years ago that said, hire someone from overseas. It may cost you five to 10 bucks, but it'll save you the boring time. That was nine years ago. I'm like, wait, that's a solution. But I realized, oh, that was nine years ago. Today, you just download it, put it in an AI, and it just spits out everything with timestamps. And also, hey, Zunate spoke. Hey, Jeremy spoke. Hey, Alex spoke. And it breaks that down. So that's the big transition that we've seen from AI back from when you were first interested in it to what we are now. You talked about the influencers. And so many times, often we've seen brands who kind of get the wrong influencers, right? There's a saying where it's like, hey, you don't want influencers that are just well-known, but also influencers that are known well, because it's about those individuals that follow them that truly believe in what they're saying. So it's you got to make sure you find the right influencers in there as well. Now, Alex, you know, something that I saw on Rad AI's website is how it talks about cutting through the noise, right? It was like a four minute video where it's like, hey, there's so many billions of dollars that are spent on marketing that just kind of goes to waste because you're just looking at the wrong information. You're just trying to see what works, but you're getting the wrong intel. Kind of like what Jeremy mentioned, where you're trying to do the research. From your standpoint, from an academic and technology standpoint, what are some of the recent developments in AI that you think are most relevant that are kind of like reshaping 
the brand customer interaction for the common man like myself? Sure. Well, I, I think I, I would even more generally open the aperture to what are the major AI developments that are changing the world uh, in almost every space. And that is, and I've written an essay about this, uh, the availability of novel large data sets, uh, the availability of much better machine learning models, and then the availability of much better compute. Uh, we're, we're awash in compute right now as a, as a planet, uh, and we're about to get quite a bit more. And I, I think the intersection of much better data sets for this domain, much better algorithms, much better compute are really driving a transformation in terms of what's possible. And, and really, I think uh, unlocking uh, uh, the equivalent of an industrial revolution, uh, a third industrial revolution or a first AI revolution in this case. Now, what's kind of impressed you with the way that we're reshaping, right? Kind of with the answer that you just said, is there anything that's been surprising to you to where when you first got interested in AI, you didn't even fathom that something like this was possible? I think that the big surprise is just how far self-supervised learning so-called can get. Uh, so I, I think back to uh, being an undergrad uh, at MIT, one of my earliest research projects was trying to build what uh, what basically would look like a large language model today. But the, the focus at the time was focused on hand curating data sets to be used for training the AI. And if, if I could build a time machine and send back in time what I know now about how to build artificial general intelligence uh, back decades, it would probably be that at the end of the day, building general intelligence is really just a matter of taking a large amount of data and compressing it down as much as possible to find the most parsimonious, simplest yeah. explanation for it. If, if we knew that, if, if we knew that building intelligence, super intelligence was basically uh, as simple conceptually as uh, fusion, where the trip to energy fusion, you just compress down a lot of matter into a small volume and fusion almost inevitably results. If I knew that AI was just the result of compressing a large amount of information into a small space, the world would be a very different place. Yeah, I mean, indeed, we don't have a time machine to go back three to five years, but German, we also don't have a time machine to go forward three to five years. But I'd like to know where you're hoping to be, especially when it comes to key growth industries that you're hoping to target over the next, say, three to five years. I love what Alex just said, uh, by the way. And, and before I hop into key growth industries, I, I think one of the things about AI I just want to touch on is, you know, there's a human EQ combined with AI that really is where the magic happens. So you see these industries that are growing and these leaps and bounds that are growing, but at the end of the day, the, it's, it's humans that are driving this innovation. So there's these misconceptions that are out there about these evil machines with red eyes that are gonna come in and take over the world and AI is gonna come into the zeitgeist and it's gonna control everything. And what we're seeing is it's really just not the case. And uh, in the world of marketing, there needs to be a human touch the AI is making it better. So when we talk about growth industries, I think it's important to understand where we were and then yeah. talk about where we're going because we started in a very traditional context of the types of industries that we're going to get product market fit, entertainment, beauty, fashion, food, footwear. And those are very traditional industries when you start talking about marketing technology as a whole. And what we found is really the same rules apply for these really traditional B2C industries in B2B industries. Content authenticity 
if people trust the things that you're saying and putting in front of them in a sea of noise, then they are more likely to pay attention to you and they're more likely to give you their dollars, whatever that essentially means. So for us, growth industries are in these more non-traditional but equally big, if not bigger industries, B2B enterprise, healthcare, pharmaceutical. Yeah. These are industries that we're targeting. We have some very large activations that we have this year in a pharmaceuticals industry. And for us, that's a whole new thing, but the principles lay the same. Uh, so we are really agnostic when it comes to where we're going and how we're going. It's more about the type of customer. And uh, you know, it, it's funny because if you think about it, like from the second we wake up in the morning, to pretty much the second that we turn our phone upside down, or at least most of us turn our phone upside down and go to bed at evening, we are just peppered with yeah. content and messages all day long, if you think yeah. about it. And if you think about that at a global scale, depending on what you define as a message or a piece of content, you're talking about 30 to 50 billion pieces of content a day are exchanged on the internet, whatever yeah. your definition of that is. So that's yeah. a sea of noise. So the value for our attention is extreme. Yeah. And that's really the way we think about it. And if you think about it, really the, the same principles apply as a brand relationship with a human, yeah. as a human relationship with a friend. If I have a friend and every time I talk to that friend, I feel like I need to put my hand in my back pocket because they're lying to me or misleading me, I'm probably not going to be friends with that person much longer. Or if I am, yeah. I love punishment in some sort of weird sort of psychological manner. However, if I am a brand and I'm doing the same thing, we just choose not to do business with that brand. They go into yeah. the uh, they go into the ether of nothingness in our mental uh, in our mental uh, map. Yeah. But if we trust the things that the brand is saying, we resonate with the messaging that they're putting in front of us, then we choose to engage with that brand. We choose to love that brand. We choose to show that love by giving them dollars and whatever that means. That holds true no matter what industry you're in. So really that's our that's our that's our kind of how we got to where we're going. Yeah. And for us a lot of growth is coming from these larger non-traditional B2B industries this year. Well, I hope none of us have uh, friends where we have to put our hands in our back pockets. And then you know the it's it's an important thing that you mentioned in terms of you want to make sure you, you're working with brands that are not you're able to provide some value to, but also that they provide value to you as well in the sense of, hey, having a good business relationship, making sure that your information helps them out as well. Let's talk about the investment landscape. And Alex, I'll come to you with this one. What are some, you, you know, you've done a lot of different work. I talked about your accolades and then some that I can't read all of them out just yet. But as an advisor, what are some of the key factors that you consider when you're evaluating an AI company strategy? Because I feel like AI is such a broad, you know, realm here. It's a broad thing that you can go ahead and work with. I feel like every company has to have a different bit of a strategy and evaluation needs to be different based on what you're doing. So what do you consider when you're evaluating AI company strategy? So I, I think uh, three general principles, and I, I think this applies pretty broadly uh, to, to look at are the, the team, uh, the traction and the market. Uh, I think the the team working with Jeremy and, and team over the years uh, has been uh, a very impressive experience. Uh, it's been a delightful experience working with the team. Uh, the traction, uh, I'll let Jeremy talk about that, but uh, I, I think uh, I think the traction combined with market in general, and I, I think the market opportunity is vast in this space. There's, as uh, alluded earlier, there's so much now generative content in the world and 
uh, so little, in, in some sense, uh, scarce consumer attention matched up against that post-abundant content, it really creates the, the sort of market dynamic that I, I think opens room for a, a, a company like Rad to be quite successful. So looking at the three, the team, the traction, and the market uh, are, I think, good, uh, good success factors for building a wildly successful AI startup. Is there anything when you're looking at the team, you're looking at the traction, you're looking at the market, how, when you're looking at the market specifically, how far are you looking? Are you looking at like, say three years, five years, are you looking at 10 years? Like how far along are you looking at it? At, at all time scales. Um, the, the most important time scales, of course, uh, this present point in time, I, I think looking out further five to 10 years, the world is going to be uh, such a radically different place. It, it's almost past a sort of technological event horizon that it, it's very difficult to do forecasts on, on that time scale from a technological standpoint. So uh, most of my attention ends up then just due to this, this technological event horizon uh, being focused on the next few years. And, and there, yeah. I think that the team is well positioned. Now, Jeremy, you, you know, your funding to date has been in the tens of millions. And for the investors that are interested in Rad AI, what makes your company like a unique opportunity in the AI space itself? Well, it all starts, well, there, there's several reasons, but it all starts with the problems that we're solving at market, which essentially is uh, what you should do, why you should do it, and who you should do it with. Um, and, and those are problems that never go away in the digital communications space. So if you think about it, that's really the, the core problem that we're solving. And if you talk about it from a traction perspective, uh, we're a modest uh, team, uh, modest meaning we have uh, less than 30 full-time employees, yet we're winning uh, some of the largest, most enterprise and desirable accounts that are at market. We have contracts with the largest holding companies in the world on both the media and agency side. And if you ask, like, why are we doing this? Typically, the brands that are winning these are probably 15 to 20 times our size. It's really because we've invested into the hard stuff first. Uh, this is not just an idea that we came up with when AI got trendy. Uh, the company has been around since 2011, actually. Uh, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, aside from the significant amount of revenue, excuse me, of financial resources that have been invested. There's a significant amount of time invested into developing the models. And then above and beyond that, there's an infrastructure that we've built and able to ingest these different data sets across the open web. That's social ecosystems, open web ecosystems, in order to understand what recommendations should be made and being able to validate those recommendations. So you kind of have this whole world of things that we've done before we went to market, which give us a distinct differentiation, which is why we're winning. So now if you kind of take that to now, which means we have product market fit with both brands and with agencies, and you talk about where we're going. Well, yes, we're raising money. Uh, to date, we've raised over 27 million. We have over 6,500 investors, executives from Google and Amazon. We have VCs that are um, invested into us. And we're taking this infrastructure that we've built, this AI infrastructure, and we have an M&A strategy that we're deploying right now in 2024. And we have a Reg A plus uh, raise that we're launching in April. Leading into the Reg A plus, we are still raising, uh, and that is the that is the uh, the site that you have up right now. 
So this M&A strategy that we have is to acquire smaller agencies. And the reason behind that is uh, there's a there's an extreme belief here based off of some research that we've done and also based off of our existing partner relationships that the revenue that these companies have will simply be more valuable with us. What that basically means is we're going to be able to use our AI to reduce operating infrastructure, use our AI to increase closing percentages, use our AI to improve lifetime value. So the same things that we're doing with our customers, we're going to use and deploy across agencies. So what that basically means across target agencies that we're acquiring. So what that means is we're doing something called an AIBO, which is an AI buyout. And it's a combination of stock and proceeds. So a lot of the funds that we're raising right now and the proceeds we're raising right now are going to be allocated towards closing target acquisitions. We have our first one circled. We hope to close our first one and go into do, uh, formal due diligence in April. Now, something that we didn't mention at the top, which I'd like to get to now, is Rad AI. And I saw you point this out in one of the videos that I watched is remove all doubt. Why that? Uh, why those three letters? Why that acronym? Well, essentially, what we've realized is over time, it helps remove all doubt because the decision is still in the hand of the marketer. The pen is still in the hand of the person making the decision. It helps you make better decisions as a marketer or as a digital communications expert that's responsible for putting out some sort of comms into the marketplace. And right. the idea there is, you know, look, these can be at a very small level or it can be at a more extreme level, but it's budgets that range from 25,000 to several million dollars. Right. And you're making these decisions on what you should do and why you should do it. And the way it's done before rad is you look at all of this information in all these different places, and then you start to analyze it. And then you start to give your opinion on that, on, on what this stuff means. And right. typically these, these, these types of opinions are either very expensive from, from a senior analyst who knows how to massage the information or you're a brand and you're making guesses based off of what works and what doesn't work. But yeah. essentially there's a lot of bias that's peppered into that. And what we do is we give you a way to look at all of this information and give you data and actionable things that you can do with that data in order to make better content decisions. And that doesn't just start with what influencers you should or shouldn't book. It starts with the audiences, the topics, the categories, and the interests that you should be building content around. And that serves as a basis. Then you can start talking about the personalities and your content marketing strategy once you know the things that your customer cares about today. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because my producer and I, when we we're you know, doing research preparing for this webinar a couple of days ago, we talked about how sometimes we know what works in our content strategies, right? Like a controversial individuals, controversial topics, but then it's like outside of that, there's a lot of noise of like, hey, does this topic work? Is it because we use a certain talent on air? That's why it didn't work. Was it the verbiage that we use? Was it the style of fonts and different things like that? So there's so much research that needs to go into content creation. Like for example, I remember Mr. Beast, very well known uh, YouTuber, millions and millions and millions of views on every single video within hours. He would take uh, like his picture on the thumbnail would be with his mouth open, right? He tried a bunch of different things and his mouth would be open on the thumbnails. Then he had the same exact video with his mouth closed and just smiling. And that video just took off even more. So it's like, those little things of like, how would you have known to close your mouth and your views would have gone up? So it's like so much information is out there that I think it's key to figure out, hey, what's the best way to decipher through it and make the best decisions possible? Before we wrapped up though, Alex, I want to come back to you and give the floor to you for any of your final thoughts uh, before we head out here. 
I'll maybe just as a closing comment point out, I, I think the space is incredibly exciting and the, just from a timing perspective, technology makes this the right time to, to start thinking seriously and critically uh, uh, given generative AI uh, in general and, and in particular generative imagery and generative video makes this the right time to start to think about what the future of influencer marketing looks like in that context. I, I see headlines every day about it. And this is one of the reasons why I think Rad is is well positioned to to really define that future. I appreciate you joining me, Jeremy. You're the last one. Yeah, I think uh, you know it's twofold. Uh, what I've seen um, there there's there's protecting the audiences brands care about most by making sure that brands are communicating with their target audiences in a way that they want to be talked to. Uh, yeah. I think that's really really important. And we've seen when brands fumble. And, and don't do that. We've seen so much uh, destruction, not just at the brand level, but also across audiences that they were hoping to attract, right? So yeah. when brands are deemed to be inauthentic, it can almost have such a significant backfire. So you're essentially protecting the brand to a degree. Uh, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, it's also helping the content creators, the people that are out there, have better pieces of information so they can make better content for the brands that they're employed with. So there's yeah. a kind of like a circular economy that happens here. The brands are, find, are finding better voices to help amplify their message to the world. Right. And the voices that they're finding are more authentically aligned with the brand and they're gonna create content that really resonates what the brand wants to accomplish. And right. what ends up happening if that authentic connection isn't clearly identified and the data says, yes, this works, then it's going to be known and the influencer and the brand then can make an educated decision on why they should or shouldn't engage. So the beneficiary of this is the consumer. It can be a traditional consumer. It can be a B2B consumer. But yeah. when better information is put in front of us, we benefit from that because we're enjoying that digital consumer, uh, that digital experience more. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more, you know, especially as we move forward with this creator economy, as it's already started. It's not like it's coming. It's already here. We're in the thick of it. And it's only going to get better. I know anytime. And we've all heard of like TikTok shop and different things like that. And, you know, I know whenever I go ahead and purchase things it's based off of podcasters that I listen to that I go ahead and trust. It's like, all right, cool. Here's a value that they're bringing to me in terms of content creation. So I'm going to go ahead and trust what you're saying versus a Super Bowl ad that I saw about a brand. It's like, eh, I couldn't really care less, right? Like how many of us walk away when an ad's playing versus if it's a content creator that's creating content and giving us information, you kind of hone in, you listen in and you see what they have to say. Well, I'd really appreciate you two joining me. I could talk about AI and marketing and content creation, you know, for longer and longer, but I know you two have to go. I really appreciate both of y'all's time. And I really look forward to having more conversations in six months and see where you guys are at. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. You two take care and chat. We always want to go ahead and thank you as well. But that was Jeremy Barnett, who is a CEO and co-founder of Rad AI and Dr. Alex Wisner, gross AI academic, founding advisor for rad ai as well and ai it's it's truly such an incredible thing but it's just one term and there's so many leaves so many branches of what you can do with it and i genuinely believe i've gone through it in terms of content creation where there's a lot of noise out there you never really know hey does this information matter does that information matter which way do i go and then you end up having analysis paralysis i'm sure all of us have gone through those things and so you want to go ahead and find a way to decipher the information, filter it to what it is that you're doing, but more so important to the type of consumer 
you're trying to reach out to. So make sure you guys go ahead and check them out. I've got the link that's posted there in the chat as well. It's invest.radintel.ai. And again, we thank you for watching Benzinga. We'll see you next time.